Good morning, everybody. Sunday morning. I'm Billy Cervini. I know a lot of you, and a lot of you I don't, but uh, I'm Billy. I work with a ministry here called Redbird, and I've been partnering with St. George's for a number of years, and it's good to be here. Uh, it's been a crazy week. I'm in the middle of selling a house, which if anyone's ever done that, you know that that is literally evidence that we live in a fallen world, <laughs> right? But I feel remarkably, like, clean inside, right? I feel kind of light, like I've kind of had this spiritual car wash going on here. And there's only three things that can make that happen in my life. The first one is if I'm in a season of, with a lot of prayer. The other reason it can be is that I'm reading God's word a lot. And the third reason that can contribute to that, that feeling of internal lightness to me is that I'm not reading the news. Right? Now, I've done some praying and, and I've read a lot of scripture recently, but I really want to attribute my, my internal climate right now more to the fact that I have not been doing that doomsday scrolling on my phone. You know what I'm talking about? When you get in bed at night and you're like, oh, this blew up or this person's dying or this happened. Or, and it's just this thing that just pulls you into this dark spiral. Like if you're my age or, you know, 40 and up, man, news has changed, hasn't it? Oh, my gosh. Walter Cronkite, most of y'all don't even know who that is. But it's not like that anymore. It's changed because our culture has changed. Everything that you will read that takes the front, it's, it's defined by our sense of outrage. You notice that? It's just, it's about what am I outraged about? Don't get me wrong. There's, there's plenty of stuff that's outrageous, Right? There's plenty of stuff that's worthy of a strong emotional response, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that outrage that, that, that is designed to pit us against one another. That by, by design, it, 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 is, it is an us-them kind of thing. And the funny thing about modern outrage that we deal with is it's got a really tight shelf life. The, our outrages last one month. Like it's either Trump or then it's Biden or it's gun control or it's Roe versus Wade or it's our plastic footprint or it's pick a card. How many of you guys saw friendships or churches divided over whether someone got a vaccine or not? Remember that thing? We don't talk a lot about that now. So you go through, when you go through enough through these kind of outrage cycles, these month-long outrage cycles, here's what you realize is that what's driving the reaction to these things might not entirely be about the issue, right? It seems like outrage is the goal in and of itself. Because when I do that, when I do that, it's this thing that puts us in camps. My incredulity, my sense of outrage over what you think versus what I think, it's, it's really about my self-righteousness. And when I, when, I, when, I, when I get outraged about an issue, I can dress it up with politics, but I'm really not putting my righteousness on display. I'm really putting my pride on display. It's funny. It's a really modern issue, but this is something that Jesus puts his finger in the middle of all the time when you read Scripture. And he does that especially in this passage. Jesus uh, tells this parable that we just read about the Good Samaritan. It's a really famous passage. And you don't have to be a Christian to, to, to realize that. It's something that's become a sort of buzz phrase in our, in our culture. 
So Jesus is, is just to kind of recap the story real quick, Jesus is sitting with his disciples. He's got, they, had, they had just come back from this kind of mini mission trip that he sent them out on, 72 of them. And they came back, and they're recounting all that, that had happened. And there, it's the crescendo uh, moment for them as disciples. But all of a sudden, it's, they're interrupted by this rude guy. And scripture says, and behold, a lawyer stood up. Now, girl, nothing ever good happens after that. <laughs> nothing against lawyers, but when that's the setup. And behold, a lawyer stood up, and the lawyer was there. And when we say lawyer, he wasn't, this wasn't like Alan Dershowitz or like Matlock, right? This was a, a person who was an expert on Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, what you were allowed to do and what you weren't to do. He was an official in the temple. We don't know exactly what he was. He could have been a priest, could have been a Levite of some sort, but we know that he had some authority. And why was he there? Verse 25, it says, the lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test. It was a setup. It was a trap. And he asked Jesus, he says, teacher, what shall we do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, because he's really good at this stuff, he says, what do you think? And the guy, he quotes the Shema, Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And Jesus says, great, go do that. Well, this guy's not done. It says that the scripture says, seeking to justify himself, meaning seeking to be like, hey, check me out. He turns to Jesus and says, who is my neighbor? It's a, such a lawyery question. Again, nothing against lawyers, but it's such a legalese question. So the thing about this is it's, it's so wormy. And the reason you can see how wormy the question is, is the priests and the Levites, these were the people in, the, in that community that worked in the temple, and they had a very high status. Now, the reason they had a high status is not because they earned it. It's because they were born into it. They had this sort of birthright. You were born into these tribes, and you became, you were kind of ushered along this pathway into these roles. And they were the gatekeepers of this, this righteousness, and they had a very, very tribal way of looking at things. They were the ones that got to determine who was clean and who was unclean, who was uh, in the good standings with God and who was not, who were the Jews, who were the Gentiles, who was us versus them. So the question that this guy was asking was, was not uh, a display, or he wasn't really genuinely curious about who his neighbors were. He knew who his neighbors were because in his lens, the neighbors were the people he got to call clean, the Jewish people, the people that were in good standing with the temple. Everybody else, he didn't have to love them. Now when you hear that, if you're anything like me, I think to myself, what a worm. Do you kind of think of that way too? It's kind of wormy, isn't it? Nodding, yes, yeah. Like what an intolerant jerk that guy is. You see, my reaction, and if your reaction is similar to mine, I realize when I think about it, I'm a lot more like him than I'd like to admit to myself. Of course, I, I don't see it that way. And neither are you, right? I'm a lot more tolerant. I'm willing to see the nuances of people who disagree with me. That is until they disagree with me on something that is really important to me, that I find unacceptable. You know that guy that has the Bernie sticker on his car or the MAGA hat on or 
someone who's celebrating Roe versus Wade being overturned or someone who wants to enshrine it in an amendment or gun control or pick a card. See, when those people cross that line for me, whether it's the left or right, it doesn't matter. It's not the point. Those people that cross that line, all of a sudden in our hearts we think, I don't, they're not my neighbor anymore. I don't have to love them. I can create a caricature out of what they are, and then I don't have to treat them in the way that someone that would be in my good graces. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying, right? I'm not saying that you can't have opinions, and I can't say you can't even have strong opinions. I'm not saying you can't even fight for your opinions. But I'm saying when our ability to hold an opinion and my ability to love someone who disagrees with my opinion becomes mutually exclusive, the problem is not the other person, and the problem is not the issue. The problem is me. The problem is you. The problem is my pride. I am self-righteous in those moments. So Jesus keeps going, and he tells this story. So there's a man who's walking down this desolate road from Jerusalem, and he's mugged on the side of the road. He's stripped, and he's beaten, and he's left to die. Now, a shocking number of commentators of people you'll hear uh, comment on this, this passage, that they talk about the person that was beaten as a Jewish man. But the truth is, when you read it, it doesn't say who he is. We don't know if he's a Jew. We don't know if he's a Gentile. We don't know if he was a a holy man, clean, it doesn't matter, and that's the point. It's important because he represents this kind of universal neighbor. He's got no identity. He's not defined by his religion, his Jewishness, his lack thereof. What defines him is that he is a person and that he is hurting. So he's robbed and he's beaten and he's left for dead. And all of a sudden these two holy men come by individually. First becomes the priest and then comes the Levite and they have the same reaction. They don't just not stop for him. They actively like, oh, cross to the other side of the road, do this, act like they're on their cell phone. They really do everything they can to avoid coming in contact with this guy. They literally do an arc around him. And the point Jesus is making here, you can't deny it the way he's telling it. It's so obvious that he's saying to this lawyer, he's like, hey, kid, just because you have this position doesn't make you holy and loving. But then comes this Samaritan, right? Now, you maybe know this, but the Jews did not care for the Samaritans very much. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But the Samaritan stops, and he is this paragon of mercy. It says that he pours wine on his wounds. I'm not sure what that's about, but that's what he did. <laughs> right? So he poured wine on the guy's wounds and oil. Valvoline. And, pair, and, and he tends to the wounded man. And he puts him on his own animal, which means he walks while he carries this guy. He takes him to the inn. He takes care of him. He pays the innkeeper. And he says, please take care of him. Because I'm coming back. So I'm not just taking care of him now. I'm leaving and on my way back, I'm going to come and take care of him again, and I will settle up the debt that's incurred here. He goes to the wall for this guy. And then Jesus asked the lawyer, which of these three men do you think proved to be the good neighbor to this guy? Well, it's obvious. He says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to them, you go and do likewise. So what's the point of this passage? See, there's a lot, there's a lot of them in here, but we would be missing it if we think that what Jesus is really saying here is just go be like the Good Samaritan. Of course he is, but that's not the deeper point. You can only really see the deeper point of this when you see how he is pushing 
into the heart of this lawyer. You see, the hero of the story, the person that Jesus is holding up as a paragon of virtue, he's a Samaritan. Like I said earlier, the, the, the Jewish people did not care much for the Samaritan. They didn't like him very much. And here's the rub with it. They had a pretty good reason for it. They had a pretty good reason. See, years ago, a little history lesson, Israel was invaded by Assyria. And the Assyrians were terribly brutal people. And they murdered and they killed and they destroyed the temples and they just wiped out their culture. And one of the ways they wiped out their culture is they moved in. And they took the Israelite women and they made them their own. And they had babies. And the babies they had were half Assyrian and they were half Jewish. And they, learned, they eventually became called Samaritans. And these were people who were sympathizers with the Assyrians. And they were kind of Jewish, and they took all the Jewish traditions, and they twisted them a little bit. The scriptures, they used them their own. They sympathized with the Assyrians. They moved, and they, had, they worshipped in a different place. So not only did they sympathize with the oppressors, this, this, this army that came in, they adopted the Jewish religion and culture, and they made what the Jews felt was a mockery of it. Now, I don't know where you fall on that issue, because you probably don't fall anywhere on that issue, but if you're a Jewish person, especially a temple leader, you would have a big issue with these people. And when Jesus frames the parable, and he's holding up this Samaritan as the, the ideal, he's pushing the lawyer's face into something. And what he's pushing the lawyer's face into is this Samaritan's humanity. He's shattering this caricature that this guy had of him. And the point wasn't as much about how the Samaritan loved others. It was as much as it is about how the prideful and self-righteous do not. See, this whole thing started with the lawyer asking, how do you gain eternal life? It talks about you love the Lord your God. And what Jesus is saying is the measure of a person's spiritual depth, the measure of how they love their God or if they love their God is not how much they can display it publicly through religion and ritual. It isn't even in how much you love your neighbor. The true measure of your love of God and your spiritual character is the way you love the neighbor that you have every right to despise. The one that has offended you, the one that disagrees with you and lives a life totally contrary. How do you love them? See, from a Christian lens, it says, if you want to see how much you love Jesus, all you got to do is look at how much I love Judas. That's hard. See, the ones that give me every reason to not love them, that have genuinely wronged me, because let me tell you this, because this is what Jesus knows in this. The most dangerous kind of anger you will carry in this world is the righteous kind. Because righteous anger gives me every reason not to forgive. Oh, it gives me every reason when I'm right. Because no one would fault me for saying, you're right. That dude deserves what he gets. When I'm right, I can condemn. But Jesus knows something that we don't know in our natural self. Love's not fair. 
See, if Jesus clinged to being right, we wouldn't be sitting here, would we? If righteous anger were his goal, to whip us up into a righteous frenzy, that leaves no room for mercy. It leaves no room for grace. The idea of grace presupposes that I'm wrong, that I've genuinely offended something or someone. But Jesus knew righteous anger. And he knew he had every reason to aim that in our direction. But he also knew that the heart of love and that it wasn't fair. So as a result, Jesus became like the Samaritan. He walked the desolate road out of Jerusalem where he was beaten and stripped and nailed to a tree and left for dead. And the holy men, the righteous men, they didn't just pass him by. They were the ones that nailed him to that tree. And he did that in that desolate place so we wouldn't have to. So I wouldn't be stripped and left for dead because of someone's righteous anger, because of God's righteous anger. And the reason we do that, how do we go and be like the Samaritan? We realize the way that God loved us in those ways. We realize that the pathway is not about being, to love is not about me being right or getting someone else to own up to the, every ounce of how they've been wronged. But it's when I'm wrong and I choose to love anyway. When my spouse has done that thing that for the 50th time that we've talked about, that thing you sat in the counseling room and you talked about and they do it again, you love anyway. When you have every reason to drive the, the, the point home when they failed you again, that friend, that spouse, that child, and you don't, and you choose to love. That's the gospel path. You see, here's the deal. It's so easy to be defined by outrage, and especially now when we live in a culture that fans the flames of that. And my encouragement to you is this. We see that that outrage that we publicly display is more about our self-righteousness, more about our pride, the humility of Christ, the ways that we are loved, is ones that we don't have to be right, even when we are. That we can love despite those people that disagree with us. And when we forgive and we move in those ways, we find that we are the ones that are unburdened. Amen. This is the gospel of the Lord. Father, I thank you uh, that you are who you say you are. I thank you that through your Holy Spirit that you uh, penetrate our hearts, that we can see and we want to vilify people like the lawyer in this story and we realize we're probably more like him than we care to admit to ourselves. But because of you, Jesus, we are more loved than we would ever dare believe. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done on the cross. Thank you for who you call us as a result, that we are loved and we belong to you. I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would drive this into our hearts. In the name of Jesus, amen.